Hello, hello, and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and in this episode, we continue our journey through Harry Potter and New World Wines, this time with the fourth and pivotal novel, The Goblet of Fire. I was absolutely thrilled to welcome back Amanda McLaughlin of Multitude. If you haven't listened to our Old Kingdom episode yet, please do so. It's one of my favorite episodes of the podcast yet. Amanda is so insightful, and we had such a great time discussing Garth Nix that I asked her if she would be willing to come back and chat about Harry Potter with me. She graciously did, and she of course was brilliant and made me think about so many elements in J.K. Rowling's universe and the fandom that followed that I hadn't thought about before, so I hope you enjoy. As I mentioned, Amanda is the co-founder of Multitude, a podcast collective and consultancy, and they offer so many resources to podcasters at all stages. Whether you're just starting out or looking into getting sponsorships, there are so many resources on Multitude's website, multitude.productions. You can also find links to some of the podcasts that Amanda is on, like Spirits and Join the Party, which, if you're a pairing listener, you know how much I love those podcasts. And speaking of Spirits, which is co-hosted by Amanda and Julia Schifini, thank you to Julia, who edited this episode. I seriously love these ladies, and they are doing podcasting right. Speaking of sponsors, we are sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter, an online resource for business owners, employers, and creatives to find the talent they need for their business. And if you go to ZipRecruiter.com pairing right now, you can post your first job for free. I'll tell you more about it in the mid-roll. Don't you worry. Last but not least, thank you to all of our patrons, including our producers, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, Alison Turi, and Michael Beck, who all belong in the sexy Australian Harry Potter fanfic, and to our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who makes me happier than the Ginny Weasley Slytherin fanfic. These wonderful people, along with all of our other patrons, will get to join us this coming Wednesday, May 29th, for an all-patron live-streamed episode about the most divisive topic in pop culture right now, Game of Thrones. We are definitely going to be doing a Song of Ice and Fire series on the podcast at some point, but because the TV series just ended, Winston and I will be sharing our relatively spoiler-free, broader feelings about the show, fighting over who remembers the books better, and, most importantly, why wine won the Game of Thrones, and which characters would drink which wines. You still have time to join us and get access to this live stream, as well as tons of other bonus content for as little as $1. So come check it out at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. Don't forget, the absolute best way to support the show is by telling your friends about us, so spread the word. Without further ado, here is episode 38, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with Amanda McLaughlin. Well, I am so excited to be here with Amanda McLaughlin, who you've heard before on Pairing and hopefully on many other podcasts as well. But we are here in the flesh, and um, and this is this is about the most comf- comfy and luxurious <laughs> setting I've ever had to record for Pairing. You so. look like you are like reclined on a divan, yes, and someone is feeding you uh, various grapes, yes. Which is so appropriate because yeah. sometimes you just want to eat the grapes and not 
have them fermented and turned into wine. Yeah. Do you ever eat the grapes that the wines come from? Is that part of your training? No, it's it's not usually. Like every once in a while, I have I have had some like wine grapes because they're not tasty. Yeah, they're yeah. not the normal grapes. Um, but I know because I've never worked a, a wine harvest before. But my friends who have, they say they like to like pick them off the vine. Every oh yeah, once in a while and just just to see. Them. Yeah. I was watching an Epicurious video where a tea expert tasted different teas and most of the process and like they, they decide yeah. uh, they want for wine and tea and like uh, olive oil and all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and they just, the, the expert tries to discern which one was like, more expensive than the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was really cool for me to see the tea expert spend so much time just like sniffing and looking at and examining the the tea leaves. That is so funny. Because as just like a like on a pedestrian consumer of tea, it's always in a tea bag. So right. I, it's like right. a whole part of the process that I don't even know about. I recently got really into green tea. Oh, yeah. And there's like this fancy Japanese spa in Santa Fe and they sell like really fancy green tea. Nice. And so I bought some and now I'm hooked on it. And so I have to keep going back and get like the loose leaf. You're like, damn it. I know that this is good. I know. Right. (laughs) No other green tea is good enough anymore. Well, so here we are and we're continuing our Harry Potter series. And I am so excited to talk to you, Amanda, about the fourth and pivotal Goblet of Fire. Oh, yeah. Yes. And also, I'm curious to get your your thoughts on Harry Potter as a whole. Sure. You know, you know, whatever comes to mind. And just to start off, so Amanda, just so you know, for these Harry Potter episodes, I'm calling this series the Harry Potter and New World Wine series because awesome. for the Tolkien episodes, I did Old World Wines. So this is basically, so that's that was, I talked about European wines with the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. This, I'm talking about a different major New World wine region for each Harry Potter book. So for the first book, it was Chile. The second book, it was New Zealand. Third book was South Africa. And this book is Australia. Ooh. Yes, which I have I have some re- reasoning behind that. But mostly I was like, when this book came out, I was like, oh my God, it's so long. It's so, and I was like so excited about it. Like the Outback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the Outback. And Australia is one of the wine regions, like they call all of Australia a wine region, which is kind of ridiculous. It's a continent. It is a continent. And within it, there are many, many different wine regions. The four main ones are New South Wales, which is like where Sydney is, kind of on the southeast part of Australia, Victoria, a little bit to the west of that, South Australia, and Western Australia. And the only one I'm really going to talk about at all today is South Australia, because Mm -hmm. that's the one where the most prestigious little wine regions are from. And so the most famous of that is the Barossa Valley, and then there's also the Eden and Clare Valleys, and there's a bunch of other ones too. Wow, you're really like swinging for the fences when you name your region Eden. Yeah. Yeah, like what you if totally you produce are. a subpar wine? Right, right. And actually, so I I brought a reason. I think it's actually I think it's a Clare Valley Riesling. I'm I don't know the difference between the Clare and the Eden How Valley. Dare you? I You're know. fired from I'm wine. Sorry, I'm sorry. Bad for find, life. I couldn't find an Eden Valley. But yeah, so I just wanted to start off by giving you that general information about Australia. We'll talk a little bit more about it, and then. As I've been trying to do with each of the different books, because Harry, Hermione, and Ron grow and mature and change they do. from each book. <laughs> None more in this than in this one, I think. I, I think so. Yeah. Like this this really feels like a coming of age 
novel. It like I was I was thinking about it last night. I was like, this is like the John Hughes movie <laughs> of the of the Harry Potter books. Like yeah. with the Yule Ball and everything. It's like they actually get to be like teenagers for yeah. the first and, time. Like, win the football game. I just started Friday yes. Night Lights and it is ruining my life. Uh oh, by which start- I mean super enriching it. Yeah, I'm you like on episode it. six or something. Oh my god. Yeah. It is so good. I know. It's it amazing. Is, I, I'm due for a rewatch. It is one of my favorite Oof. shows. You should definitely talk to Eric Silver about Friday Night Lights. It's like I, his fundamental text. I absolutely will. Yeah. It is absolutely and Connie Britton always has a glass of white wine. Yeah. And, every and time she's on screen, I just yell, Connie Britton! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tammy! Tammy! So oh, good. She's so amazing. I love her so much. I think that's the best and most healthy marriage I've ever seen, maybe. Yeah, it is. It's it, wonderful. It is maybe one of, like, the best on-screen marriages, like, most healthy. Yeah. And realistic. I love it. I love that show. This has been a side note. Yes, this has been a side note. But... If Coach Taylor and Tammy lived in England, they would obviously be witches and wizards. Oh, yeah. And and like Quidditch coach and, I don't know, Tammy reminds me of McGonagall in some ways. Maybe she, like a transfiguration teacher. Yeah, maybe a I muggle studies that. teacher. I could see them as like oh, a, yeah, you know, a, a muggle wizarding relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, we don't have any like power couple teacher couples, at least not canon in the Harry Potter universe. No, I know that Neville goes on to be a herbology professor. Oh, that's and right. And doesn't his wife, I don't know, if Hannah he, Gregor, I think is his wife? Oh, I thought he married Luna. No. No. Um, oh, what am I thinking? No. Unless, I mean, okay, so one of my things for this book, as as we fact check my uh, my assertion here. Yes. Um, anyway, point being, I, I think the both of them teach at Hogwarts. Maybe one's in Hogmeade, one's at Hogwarts. Sure. Um, but the... The like main thing that this book brings up for me when we talk about Goblet of Fire in my like reading experience, which yeah. I did as they came out. Yes. I start the first one came out when I was six. So as it really hit I. me at the right time. Is the fandom experience because yeah. unlike every other book, there were three years in between Goblet of Fire coming out and then Order of the Phoenix. That's right. Those so were dark times. They were dark times. Yeah. And in that time, so much of what we think of as Harry Potter fandom began and came to be. Absolutely. Podcasts, websites, forums, like fan communities on LiveJournal, and so many fanfics. Now, when you go and read yeah. ones that are, quote, like canon compliant, meaning that all the things that happen in the Harry Potter books happened in this fanfiction universe, too. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are alternate universe, yeah. that either they're like not wizards at all, or they divert from the timeline in some way. Many of them divert between books four and five. Huh, like that period is one where so many of our kind of headcanons started to form that the stuff that happened afterward, like we enjoyed. But there's also this whole other route where like the way that the war, you know, comes about and goes down is completely different. That makes total sense. I was never super part of the like online fandom part of Harry Potter. It was kind of just me and my friends Your talking private fandom, about yeah. it. Yeah. And I was a little bit older, but I think it's related because I think part of my experience reading the fourth book, which by the way, I love the fourth book. I'm not sure if it like it's There's prob- some haters out there. Oh, I know there are haters out there. And you know, objectively, I don't think it's the best or even in the top three of the Harry Potter books, but there's just something about it. And maybe it's that it came out and then there was that gap, and I just reread it so many times. But it also, it felt for me, it was the first one that I read, and I didn't feel like I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like I had grown up a little bit with Harry. Yeah. And this is where, like, 
shit gets real. It does. Like, like it's been it's been hinted at in the earlier books, but like stuff goes down in this book. By the way, Hannah Abbott confirmed as Neville's spouse. Who thank that? God. Who did Luna marry? We don't know. Uh what's his face? Hold on. Hold on. Testing oh my, my, uh, oh my, my knowledge here. Yeah, but I, I mean, can tell you that yes. Luna marries Rolf Scamander, grandson of Newt Scamander. What? Which I feel like I never made that connection. Yeah. But that is incredible. And that is incredible. I hope that uh, she gets the chance to hang out with Grandpa Newt. Because yeah. she would love him. He would love her. Oh, my God. What They're better like, pairing? Oh, my God. They are like a match made in heaven. Aww. I mean, I imagine that Newt's grandson is at least a little bit like him oh yeah oh well i'm glad that luna found i'm glad love. that luna found love me too she deserves it uh, uh not many people though find love in goblet of fire no no nope. <laughs> there's a lot of seeking love and yeah. starting to have feelings which is why which is why part of why i call it the john hughes uh i think it's a great yeah a great example yes because like you get the yule ball stuff between ron and hermione really starts heating up a little bit yeah got some male jealousy there's harry and ron Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it really is well i guess in prisoner of azkaban harry and ron kind of team up against hermione a little bit over the whole crookshanks scabbers incident yeah but that doesn't last very long and this is the first time that there's really some strife between the three of them yeah and it you know it's just like it's part of growing up and that also leads me to involved in kind of this drama is victor crumb international quidditch star who is at hogwarts for the triwizard tournament of course and i always thought victor crumb was a fascinating character really yeah, well, and I wanted more of him. Right, you know, he's like he's a like, mysterious hunk. Yeah, he's like the mysterious hunk, but like he's kind of weird looking. He really likes Hermione, so yeah. like that he speaks well of him. He's yeah. got good taste. And, you know, we get more of Fleur later in the series, but yeah. we don't really get, like he shows up at, at Bill and Fleur's wedding, I think. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we don't really get any more of him. And I wanted to know, like I wanted to know more about him and I absolutely hated what they did with him in the movies because they just yeah. Well, we can just we can just we can just slide right over, over that. Yeah, like we'll just, the we'll end just of a word in it. French, we will just skip right on over it. <laughs> um, I will tell you that in fandom, uh, Victor is one of people's favorite kind of like minor characters to insert into oh, fic. Um, makes and sense. Victor makes sense. and Harry is actually a pairing <laughs> oh. that people ship in, you know, in, in a, a fanon yeah. where Harry is bi or gay. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, who wouldn't think that Victor's a hunk? Or totally. later in life, like in some, and actually I'll talk about this a little bit, but a lot of people sort of imagine what the careers for the trio would be after mm-hmm. the events are done. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes Harry or Ginny will go into professional Quidditch and cool. Victor will often come back up as were Oliver Wood. He's another sort of like favorite uh, Harry pairing. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I just a little a little note to all my Victor rare pair uh, yeah. fans out there. <laughs> I, I love you. it. I love it. Thank you for educating me on the on the on the fandom just because I And we do call them pairings. Uh that that oh is what you call the God. the people that you want to get together. So This is so perfect. It's synchronicity. It's I love it. Synchronicity. Most of my notes here are about darkness. So I'm glad yeah. that we're kind of starting yeah. with like we're love. We're starting off with yeah. like the nice stuff, like <laughs> the fun stuff in in the Goblet of Fire, yeah. which I also like talking about the Triwizard Tournament. I like that conceit and kind of mixing Me mixing too. up the structure of the books because if they were all like we go to school, 
Harry plays Quidditch a few Voldemort times. Voldemort is somewhere. Yeah, Voldemort is somewhere. And uh, and and so I I like the conceit of the Triwizard Tournament. Yeah, I like it very much. It's really fascinating to think of the first three books as a trio, right? Like as a mm-hmm. trinity. Um, mm-hmm. And then this one is like, it is bigger. The, co- the cover is dark, yeah. you know? And yeah. having this sort of fundamental change to the way we expect the Harry Potter narrative to come at us. Yeah. Like now looking back, it strikes me how the first three books all reprise the origin story of Harry Potter, like mm. in the first few pages, mm-hmm. you know, where like his trunk because he's a wizard yep. and it did a lot of that kind of explanation because you have to, right? And like in the sequel, you can't guarantee someone's going to pick up the first one first. And also because it wasn't famous yet. Yeah. Um, and like Azkaban is when there started to be some buzz mm-hmm. in the US and then Goblet of Fire is like, oh no, this is a release. Like my first Harry Potter release party was Goblet right. of Fire. Right. I think so too. I think that was for me too, even though I was a little bit older. Oh, I was too young to be there. It was mostly teens. But oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, but I, I'm just thinking about like I remember when Prisoner of Azkaban came out, and yeah. like I remember like going and buying it and reading it. After I don't that, think you kind of had to order in advance to get one. I think I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's when that's when that started, and I remember going and like waiting in line to go pick up my copy mm-hmm. of it. So it is really where like that that part of the fandom started yeah. for sure. And there are so many ways in which this book differs from the structure of the first three. Yes. Just the ones, I'm sure I'm missing some, but the ones I noticed, like yeah. it's the first one to start in the past. Yeah. Right? It starts with a, a flashback. Yep. It's the first one to start somewhere other than Privet Drive. Yep. We don't even get to Hogwarts until page 100 something of like a 475 yeah. page book. Yeah. So it's it's so exciting. Like uh, so much about this, I think, is expanding the world. And like as J.K. Rowling like starts to get famous, I think the seven book deal happened around this time. We started to know there were seven books uh-huh, uh, in uh-huh. uh, in total. Like I, I can see her layering on elements of the world that we're going to get to later. And I have a whole list too of like, okay. you know, things that this will awesome. um, will underlay. But point being, like I, I really love that instead of just focusing focusing on one really abstract goal, right? Like you're trying to get Voldemort or you're trying to like get the polyjuice potion to get to the next step to get to Voldemort. Right. They have like this really gamified and identifiable goal in front of them, like different checkpoints. And the fact like I I remember still when I first read the scene at the end of the Triwizard Tournament where what you think is a victory or a a near miss at victory for Harry turns really really bad and like goes from a kid's game to an adult's struggle that to me is the turning point of the whole series i agree i totally agree i think that that's when it really became real Mm -hmm. to me is and and the stakes were really clear because like we knew that this guy was out there who wants to kill harry but then it's the first time that we see him sacrifice someone a character that we know yeah and that appear dies yeah Yeah. yeah, and that and that's that's a really scary thing as a kid to think about. Oh, I mean, even though Cedric was a little bit older than than we would have been at that time, it was like a a, a real way to raise the stakes of the whole series and and also show that it's not quite so simple mm-hmm. in in its own way. One of the things that I would that I've talked about for the other books is that in in each book. J.K. Rowling seems to sort of build upon a new kind of social issue mm-hmm. that that becomes the focus of the book. So in Chamber of Secrets, we get a lot of racism and we get yeah. the, we get the whole mudblood, Draco Malfoy, pure blood situation. Mm-hmm. 
The third book, I think, is about justice or injustice, as the case may be. Right. Both between Sirius and Buckbeak and seeing what happens in a in a broken justice system. And then the fourth book, we get a few different things, I think. But one of the big ones is this is where we start getting the House Elf Liberation Front. We do. And dealing with that, which I have mixed feelings about how J.K. Rowling ultimately treats yeah that subject because yeah. i think she's like trying to make a point and it kind of never gets fulfilled I um, agree. and everybody just kind of mocks hermione for feeling the way she does and doing what she does about it but yeah though you know this is the first moment that i'm considering uh spew as yes. a sort of uh, precursor to like dumbledore's army like that's kind of yeah. the first like grassroots um oh, yeah. hogwarts organization that we see even though it's mostly just Hermione right um and people you're right like laugh at her for having a stance that is so against the tradition but also mm -hmm. for sort of having one at all yeah um and so she, we're seeing her kind of involve herself in like quote-unquote like adult problems or societal problems in a way that seems almost like s sweet because again like I, I do think yeah. it's a somewhat complex issue but it's something that isn't insistent in her life but it is to her because she sees that as like a, a right. gross injustice yeah versus you know trouble is like literally pursuing Harry his whole life you know yeah um, um, so even though they have to kind of rise to meet this like larger kind of evil, I think it's a, for me, a really relatable sensation of like looking at the world and being like, why isn't anyone doing anything about this? And teenagers are idealistic, mm -hmm. you know, in a way that is like so lovely. Society hasn't beat them down yet. Yeah. Um, and so we see, you know, Hermione at, at 14, like start to kind of have a lot of these thoughts, realizations and, and want to do something about it. Which I think is, we could make the connection that this is a very relevant time to be talking about the Harry Potter series as a whole and like Goblet of Fire, Order of Phoenix, especially, I kind of feel like we're facing some, some, some issues in mm -hmm. at least it, let's, let's just stay within our country and not deal with like globally. But a lot of what's happening is that young people, youth are rising up mm -hmm. and, and starting to speak their truth and use their voices and be heard. And I think that's, that's really great. And the wonderful thing about the Harry Potter series is really putting trust in children yeah. who are often, you know, more competent and have a better moral compass than adults. Yeah. That's just one thing that I was thinking about. And as you were saying, the whole the whole scene at the end of the Triwizard Tournament, I remember I did not see that coming. Like I didn't I didn't know what was gonna I was happen. I was shocked. I yeah. was so shocked. It, it like felt like the wind got knocked out of you and it happened yeah. so quick like Cedric dies so quickly and so suddenly yeah and then and you know one thing that I did write down is that like in Prisoner of Azkaban the whole Barty Crouch Jr. reveal mm -hmm. you know it's the kind of thing where if you know it in hindsight you can go back through the book and be like oh I see there are little clues right but like you know in the movie they've got him doing the little like tongue thing as a as a visual cue right and right. we don't get that in the books There's no like, it was genuinely very surprising very surprising i mean to, to the whatever i was like 11 at the time but yes like it was it was very surprising right. and to me that sort of brings up i think if i had to choose a like societal tie-in for this yeah, or a theme, yeah yeah it would be kind of the 
untrustworthiness of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There are, I don't want to derail your point, but like there are tons of examples where something that you see is not quite what you get. The whole Triwizard Tournament is about like exploiting rules mm-hmm. and about seeing things that are set out in front of you and realizing that you have to be crafty and kind of go around the system, you know, depending on what your definition is, maybe to cheat, right. to really win. Yeah. Um, and like Harry, you know, reaching out and telling Cedric that tip he got about this, I think the mm-hmm. second challenge mm-hmm. was such a hard heartbreaking foreshadowing of sharing the victory that I yeah. that we see later in the book oh that's like, true knowing what that happens now like when Harry decides to clue Cedric in so that they start at the same point right you know if Harry had been more selfish and done the port key alone not knowing it was port key of course right Cedric right. may have been alive I mean Harry might also have died and the whole timeline would be you know off right but um like this is just to say there are so many examples even starting from you know the the quidditch tournament that you thought was safe is not mm-hmm. the triwizard cup that you thought would only spit out three names for some reason did not mm-hmm. and there are so many examples of like rules being set up only to be broken and yeah. i think a lot of that again is like the experience of being a teenager where you're like wait yeah. you know at least for me that was the first time i realized that oh like people make society it's not just mm-hmm. how it is like we yeah. make these choices and they're ones that I can either uphold or try to rebel against. Absolutely. And I think that that is a really scary, both scary and exciting part of growing up Mm -hmm. is realizing that systems are fallible as humans are fallible. And that's a really good point because I always thought, I always thought like, you know, I mean, or I guess I didn't really question it when I was a kid, but when the goblet spits out the, the fourth name and they're like, well, that's a, binding magical contract right. can't gotta, do like, anything gotta about listen it. to it same as yeah. a sorting hat like well a hat yeah. said a name and so that's what you are now for seven <laughs> yeah. years yeah it's just like you know i understand you're all like wizards and stuff but there's still like human reasoning <laughs> yeah decency yeah. and i mean a lot of this too is tradition like i i was uh, almost like i felt as if i had been struck by lightning when i saw that the this is where the sorting hat talks about the founders for the first time right um and a lot of the lore that we get you know i think that's a great example of you know this is just the artifact that just does it right um is like this is the story and these are the rules and we just do them whether that's the houses and having characteristics Mm -hmm. the cup having a triwizard tournament in the first place where dumbledore is like we decided to do it it's really dangerous so you know gotta be 17 there are so many things that i feel like dumbledore opposes yeah. But doesn't stop, even though he could yeah. very and easily. I know there's like a whole like capital D discourse around I'm like sure. Dumbledore and his ethics. Yes. Um, I think this is the first time, though, that we see Dumbledore surprised because yes. the text is very clear when Harry's name gets spit out of the cup that Dumbledore is like startled and angry looking. That is a very good point. And that's a scary thing, too, when yeah. someone who you just trust as this yeah. like all powerful parent figure when they are surprised and scared, that's a that's an unsettling thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We also see here the unforgivable curses for the first time. Yes. Um, so in Defense Against the Dark Arts. Uh, and I think, too, this is the first time that we have tied Avada Kedavra to the green light. Yes, um, I think so. Which Voldemort uses in the opening scene. Mm-hmm. And I believe at this point we know, too, that that's how Harry's parents died, at right. least by that curse. So... In that room, it was actually fascinating that Neville and Harry were the only ones with sort of like secondhand experience mm-hmm. of Unforgivables. Mm-hmm. Neville's parents obviously were tortured using Cruciatus. Right. Um, and then Harry's parents were killed with Avada Kedavra. Right. So I thought that was interesting in, in two ways. One is that like we are seeing um, a sort of foreshadowing of like the f- last three books being war books. 
Like they just yeah. are, you know, Order of the Phoenix, we see like the resistance gathering mm-hmm. and the crimes getting worse and worse, impacting mm-hmm. Muggle society, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Book six, more of the same, going out of Hogwarts, trying to be, have some like offense and find the artifacts. And then obviously Deathly Hallows is just like one big war campaign. Right. <laughs> um, right. Yep. Yes. And so here, like we we are kind of toying with like the ethics of war mm. um, and learning that like clearly the other side doesn't recognize whatever we think of, like we being, you know, like the quote unquote good guys. Right. Um, as the 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 rules you must obey Mm. and so sort of both harry and neville are sitting there obviously they'll be instrumental in the resistance of course um and that sort of singled them both out in a way that i was like oh it's a little more foreshadowing maybe that neville's also involved yeah Um, yeah because this is really the first time that neville's really given any since the first book where he stands up to them at the at the end this is really the first time that i think we see neville doing anything of real substance like he's a character of action not just a character to be there yeah and, and, and i guess the um the boggart in book three that's true that's right where yes. that was more though like he he rose up to fix a mistake that the text made him do you know but right. th- this one feels like oh like neville's fate is also tied into how this goes in the same way that like our hero is yeah and i think that and as as it's expanded upon in the fifth book you start to really get a sense of the tragedy that has befallen Neville and in some ways what happened to him. It's it's a very interesting conversation and obviously the whole, you know, the prophecy could have been about Neville. Yeah. It's got to be interesting. Like I would be interested to read the, the series from Neville's perspective. Totally. From, from like the person who was almost special and who really had a terrible tragedy. Like, you know, talking about I know people – close friends and friends of mine whose relatives um, have Alzheimer's. And mm-hmm. I imagine that that's kind of the the pain that Neville feels when he goes to see his parents who are still alive, but they're empty shells, basically, yeah. at St. Mungo's. That's just heartbreaking. That's one of the most heartbreaking scenes to me in, in, the, in the fifth book. But this is where we start to learn a little bit more about what happened to him and yeah. that Hey, you know what, Harry? You're not the only special kid who who had horrible things happen to you, and and yet no one pays any attention to Neville. And so, yeah, and so much of that is a function of narrative too, where absolutely. you know Harry's parents' uh, deaths were publicized. Harry's role in it was publicized right. in a way that you know Neville's suffering was less, um, you know, perhaps widely impactful. Yeah. Though we hear later that you know his parents being secret keepers saved lives um, and perhaps even you know Harry's own life ultimately like through a series of you know domino effects yes Um, but that that brings up for me kind of the the other aspect of the societal narrative Mm -hmm. which is the media um, and how like the media and the government are both entities that can be corrupted can be controlled um, and I don't want to like live and die by biographical criticism but I must imagine that J.K. Rowling as a celebrity author for the first time finishing this book must have had for the first time in her life involvement with like the press and people speculating about her life um, in a way that makes like Rita Skeeter again to me is like Harry Harry can't just like have a day he can't just be himself yeah um nothing is without consequence anymore and having the the media as a force that like controls what he's trying to do that messes with his life and that Mm -hmm. can just like make assertions about him that just become true in people's minds is like such a feeling of giving up of control like this is where to me harry becomes like an instrument of destiny yeah (laughs) like an instrument of the wizarding people absolutely and he can't really turn away from this anymore absolutely okay let's take a little breather here for a little mid-roll relaxation 
So, we all know that the Defense Against the Dark Arts position is a cursed one at Hogwarts. But maybe that's because Dumbledore just didn't know that many qualified wizards or witches to teach the subject. Let's be real. We probably could have avoided this whole Voldemort rising again fiasco if instead of asking Moody to take on the job, Dumbledore had just posted on ZipRecruiter. If you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's so magical that one might think it only belongs in the world of Harry Potter. But no, muggles like you and I can use it too. ZipRecruiter is like if Craigslist morphed with LinkedIn and became something way more effective. And right now, you can go to ZipRecruiter.com pairing to post your first job for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-A-I-R-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Dumbledore. And now back to the show. And I also, I, I'm glad you brought up Reuse Skeeter because I... Talking about how, you know, Spew is maybe a precursor to Dumbledore's army, mm-hmm. I feel like Rita Skeeter is kind of a precursor to Umbridge. Totally. Even though they're not working in the same medium exactly, but it's the same sort of idea of corruption and using media and narratives to spread information that in this case is normally false. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you thought Rita Skeeter was bad, and then you get Umbridge. Oh, God. Yeah. I will say that we don't have to talk about the movie, but I do love Miranda Richardson as Rita Skeeter. I think she is <laughs> terrific. Yeah. Her portrayal is amazing. I did yes. also want to add that the best, I don't think maybe the best fic I've ever read um, mm-hmm. is a like n- many novel length retelling of the series from the kind of change point that Ginny is sorted into Slytherin. Um, mm. And the like log line of the series is Ginny is sorted into Slytherin. It takes her seven years to figure out why. And just like telling the whole series from Ginny's perspective, it's canon compliant. Like all of the things that happen in the series happen in in, in this. Uh, it's like two hundred thousand words long. Oh but God. if you just Google like the Changeling Ginny Harry Potter, I I think it is incredibly worth reading. I need to read this. Oh yeah, because I'll as, text you the link. Don't worry. Okay, thank you. <laughs> as someone who always gets sorted into Slytherin, because I've taken the Pottermore quiz like three or four times. Oh yeah, because I was like, no, I'm a Ravenclaw. Excuse I am me, not- sorting hat. Can yeah. we work something out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't give you a chance on Pottermore to like they bargain do. with the with the sorting hat like Harry gets to. Why is Harry so special? But yes, it's taken me a while to come to terms with the fact that I've been sorted into Slytherin. And this is a complex understanding of what a Slytherin is. I love that. Ginny like claiming what that means for her. I love that because especially as I grow older, one of my biggest criticisms of the books is how simplistic J.K. Rowling. I mean, I know, yes, technically they're kids books, but... They're, but they're more than that. And they're she for gets, us. Like, we aged with the audience. Yeah. I think our reading is the reading, and that is not just me yeah. being a, you know, self-centered millennial. No, I, I believe that. And I just think that she could have done so much better with her treatment of Slytherins as not just, this is where all the racists and bad people go, and it's nice, and yeah. let's, let's close them off and tie a little bow on it. It's like, that's not how life works. Yeah, unfortunately. Fandom again steps in here where yeah. there is a lot of exploration of Draco in particular, since mm-hmm. he's the kind of most prominent mm-hmm. Slytherin that we have um, in, in the narrative, but also people like Petunia and Blaze and mm-hmm. um, Vince and 
uh, Greg Crab and Goyle. Oh, Vince and Greg. <laughs> Those two. <laughs> you know, well, in, in fic, sometimes they're called by their real names. Oh, that's um, so funny. I or or about that. even like, you know, Malfoy's parents, which we kind of get a little bit at in the in the narrative. Right, right. Um, but folks really enjoy having that opportunity to think like, it doesn't mean that you're evil. Like, let's just like, let's take to be true that Slytherin right. means that you, you know, want to like use rules to your own ends and that you, you know, want to pursue what you think is right, regardless of what other people tell you. Like there, there are lots of ways to kind of characterize that um, yeah. and lots of really complex, interesting, moral Slytherins yes. in fandom um, in a way that I just think is is really, really interesting. I love that. I, I love that. And I definitely I've got to get more into that and, and read read more fandom, more fanfic of like interesting Slytherins because we really like what is it? We get Tonks's mom and like we get her for like three seconds in yeah in book seven it's like but see there's a good one and yeah or like Narcissa Malfoy does one good thing and they're like everyone's fine now right (laughs) and I guess Snape that's a that's an elf in the room but right yeah (laughs) (laughs) I thought you said uh elf in the room oh (laughs) which I I, winky you are here winky (laughs) (laughs) this is gonna be one of my classic segues Winky in this book gets into a little bit of a problem with substance abuse. She does. Because she she starts drinking the butter beer. To excess. To excess. And it is just so cute how well Dobby takes care of her. Yeah. It's a really good example of like on a microcosmic scale and also a metaphorical situation of helping someone through an addiction, self-abusive behavior. However... So speaking of that, just a little bit more wine information. Um, (laughs) Please do. Yeah. So let's see. Okay. So I just wanted to talk about a couple major wineries or wine labels in Australia. And I talked about one in a different, in our uh, Australian wine on the Fury Road episode about Mad Max. Yeah. Um, What a good title. Yeah, I know, right? That was one of my favorite episode titles. And that was the MWC or McPherson Wine Company wine and the winemaker for that is joe nash she is a woman and cool whenever i hear her whenever i hear her name i always think of joe march from little women i, I thought of wrestlers so we oh. have two different references and also <laughs> listen to our wrestling episodes with julia shafini who you can also hear with amanda on spirits oh my Whoa. god it's all connected it is it's all interconnected but i love i love joe's wines Joe, you know, we go way back. <laughs> my close personal friend. Yeah, yeah just like Joe Rowling. Uh, <laughs> my two close personal friends. She makes really, really great kind of more subdued in style wines because Australia is really known for its Shiraz, which is the same thing as Syrah, hmm. but they call it Shiraz because it's so unique in Australia and it's usually like really juicy, fruity, and like big, full-bodied, like it's one of those wines that's going to turn my mouth like purple immediately. <laughs> and so that's what Australia is most famous for. I like her wines. And while that's all, that's great. That style of wine is great. I like some that have a little bit that are a little bit more subdued. And so I like her her Shiraz because it's like a, a little bit more mellow. Mm-hmm. And she makes a Pinot Gris, which is the same thing as Pinot Grigio. It's just everywhere else in the world they call it Pinot Gris. <laughs> you can only call it Pinot Grigio in Italy. Her Pinot Gris is really, really good, which is not something that you'd expect from Australia. It's not a very common grape. 
I would just think that Pinot Gris is like a cute pet name for Pinot Grigio that yeah. like insiders uh, yeah. use. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm just got a cheeky Pinot Gris. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. I like that. Pinot Gris Gris. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so then just a couple other producers. Well, the, the main one I wanted to talk about is the most famous one, which is called Penfolds. And they're in the Barossa Valley not the Eden or the Clare Valleys, but near near those. Yeah. And Barossa is the most kind of prestigious and famous for Shiraz specifically. And Penfolds is kind of like the most famous of those. And there's a particular wine called Grange, which, huh, I didn't even make this connection. Hermione. But Hermione. And this would actually be, a, I think, a good a good wine for Hermione. And apparently, so like, 70 years ago, the head winemaker for Penfolds went to Europe and like studied wine in, I think, in Spain, Portugal, and France. And in France, he really loved the wines in Bordeaux. And so he wanted to make like an Australian style Bordeaux. And so this Grange, it's slightly different every year, but um, it's usually a blend of Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon. I think sometimes there's like a little bit of Merlot in there. That just made me think of, you know, getting influence from other countries, from other cultures. This is the first book where we see other cultures and other countries and like how magic works a little bit. I love that. See? I tell you. Especially or in particular France. Yes. And Romania. Yes. France and Romania. There we go. You know, and that's part of why I wanted to get more of Victor Crumb just because I'm I'm interested because I feel like Durmstrang is like a macrocosm of Slytherin. You know, sure. like the way the way Durmstrang is treated is more basic. like militaristic, a little yeah. more reserved. Yeah. yeah. And and just how how they're all talked about and treated. It's like as like the bad ones. Yeah. Yeah. And the Bobatons are like, I don't know. They're like sl- slightly Hufflepuffish, <laughs> or no, or something more Ravenclaw. More Ravenclaw that's Maybe right. because they're blue, and that's yeah. how I put it in my mind. But also, they're a little bit like removed. Yeah, um, and they're a little bit snobby. Yeah, because they're French. Yeah, which is, <laughs> as an English author, that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely, got it. Got to throw that in there. I did want to mention with the Australian connection yeah. that the Australia AU, like alternate universe uh-huh. fic, is uh-huh. a thing. Um, oh, God, I love and so in Harry Potter, there is a tradition or not, or just like a subset, I guess, of um, of fanfics where Harry leaves England after the war mm-hmm. and just kind of like finds himself in Australia. And so mm. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because like one of them was done and then people were inspired um, or because I don't know, like Australia is mentioned somewhere in the series as I being think, like a wizarding thing. I think it is. Yeah, I think I remember. Yeah. That. So it's like I canonically can't... has a wizarding sure. component. Sure. Um, but there are similarly in how there are like lots of ones where like Draco that are Draco centric and he like becomes a barista or a teacher or like a potions researcher yeah. or something either in the muggle world or like academic in the wizarding world mm-hmm. and kind of like finds his identity and like finds purpose there. Yeah. Um, in many cases, Harry either goes to like study, you know, curse breaking or do aura training or like live as a muggle, you know, or just like have some solitude. And in some cases, starts a family. In some cases, just yeah. like, you know, does that and then comes back. So uh, I, I laughed when you said Australia because that yeah. is like the one country besides Romania where you go to like make out with Charlie and, and find dragons oh, man. that we see represented in Harry Potter fic. Oh, my God. I love that. And I'm I'm now just imagining like Harry Potter Mad Max style, like oh yeah, on the on the Fury Road and and just like 
you know, swinging wands and casting spells yeah. in the sand. Tan, oh, yeah. Like a cutoff shirt. Totally. Depending on how sexy it gets. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, it's Australia. It's going to get pretty sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's thick. It may be getting pretty sexy. Yes, yes. Which, by the way, as in my experience, the stereotype of Australians like always traveling is totally true. Yeah. Everywhere, every time I've been traveling and like abroad, is particularly in Europe. Yep. I've just always come across like huge groups of Australians. Yeah. Every time I've stayed in a hostel, I've had Australian roommates. Me too. And like population wise, like it it is way overrepresented. And I know having Australian friends that, you know, it costs like a thousand dollars US to leave the the continent. So if you're going to do it, you're going to probably do it, do it. Right. And there's more of a culture of like, uh, you know, traveling for the summer, taking a gap year or whatever it is. Yeah. But I found that totally inexplicable when I first started traveling on my own. And I was like, why is everyone in this Portland hostel Australian? Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally had the same experience. Um, so, but I love that. I love that Australians like to travel. I would, I think if uh, Americans traveled as much as Australians did, be a little less intolerant. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Who knows? But yeah, so I like that we're, you know, we're getting a little bit more information about the, the wizarding world at large and that it's not just England. And, you know, between the Quidditch World Cup at the beginning of the book and then the Triwizard tournament happens and so if we're going to add another societal thing on top of what we've talked about already maybe like international relations yeah totally another is another uh thing that starts to get approached in this one and adults having their own uh aims and like being jealous of each other or having a romance with Hagrid and Madame Maxine oh forever OTP. Oh, forever. Um, yeah, it's it, it definitely is true that like there are there is more than wizarding UK, you know? Yeah. And um that cultures are different, different places. Again, that like our traditions are not the only traditions. That for me is the biggest takeaway from Goblet of Fire. Absolutely. And I think that's that is a great thing and really starts opening up the world and, and a growing and up thing i like yeah. I, I remember going over to other people's houses for dinner and being like oh cool like you guys like one of my friends growing up kept her bread in the microwave because they didn't they had a small kitchen and they just like kept it there i don't i don't know why that's, but that's, that's where it so, was that's so convenient i yeah. mean it's efficient spatially yeah. efficient why yeah. would the microwave be empty all the time i don't know yeah don't yeah know. or like yeah. <laughs> trying like hummus or gefilte fish or something right. at someone's house for the first right. time and then and i don't know just it it made me feel like wow other people like not just that other people do things differently mm-hmm. but other people have a sense of normal that is yes. so different to what mine is totally. um and that was such a sort of like radical growing up like empathy moment for me to realize that other people were protagonists of their own lives yeah. and that their circumstances felt as normal to them as mine does to me absolutely and that uh, just to add on to that i feel like i had this experience fairly recently in my life fairly late in my life because I grew up in New England. I went to college in New England. I moved to New York. Like, this was my bubble, and this is what mm-hmm. I knew, and this is what I thought the world was. And then for reasons that, you know, you can listen to other episodes of Pairing to figure <laughs> out, um, I moved out to Colorado, and now I live in New Mexico. And it's even within the, this country, I mean, this country is huge yeah and while it's not like vastly different at least where i have lived in in that in those parts of the country from where i grew up the culture is different 
And there are different backgrounds, there's different ethnicities, and there's different rituals, there's different, and and it's been really fascinating to me to realize that I'm living in a slightly different culture, even though I'm living in the same country that I grew up in. And I think the more that uh, you can encounter people who have a different experience than you, the more enriching your life will be and the better citizen of the world you will be. And I think that's sort of what Harry is learning in in this book a little bit. He might not totally get the message 100% of the time. Right. But, uh, you know, we love him because he's he's not perfect. That's that's just something that I, I didn't really embody that until a, b- a bit later in my life, like in my early adulthood. So this is making me think, too, that like things get so serious after Goblet of Fire. Can you imagine the Triwizard Tournament taking place later? Like impossible. It's so no. like the, the the tensions are so escalated. Yeah. The trust is so fractured. Right. They cancel Quidditch like cancel later in the Quidditch? books. You know, yeah. so they it, it, this really is like a, a turning point in so many of those ways. And um, I think welcoming other people to the campus is such an inverse of like Dementors show up in the next book Absolutely. and we guard the campus with them. Yeah. Um, and so just a, a feeling of like, you know, cosmopolitanism um, yeah. is sort of the first thing to go when, when wartime occurs, which, right. you know, unfortunately lots of parallels right now to fascism, to xenophobia, to mm-hmm. reacting to change and to discomfort, not by like reaching out to help others understand, to ask for help, to give help, but to cling to what is, what you think is yours. Um, and we see that paralleled both on, on both sides of the war, you know, yeah. in, in the later books. And it is true. Like, I think, I think it's the last chapter of the book is, is a parting, the parting of the ways. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe it might be the penultimate chapter, but, <laughs> and I remember when I read it, I thought that that was kind of an underwhelming finish to the book after this crazy thing happened in the graveyard. Yeah. And then, and then we get the Virtus serum scene and figuring out the Mad-Eye party crouch situation like that's all crazy and then the last thing that happens is cornelius fudge minister of magic is like nope this isn't happening and i'm not gonna listen to anything you say dumbledore yeah and i like as a kid reading it i was like "Eh, i'm not interested in like the politics side of well bad news for you order the phoenix yeah all politics i know (laughs) i know and so uh but then i mean because there were three years between the two books, I think by the time Order of the Phoenix came out, I understood a little bit better what the implications of that choice that Fudge makes at the end of of Goblet of Fire, why that is so important and dangerous. Yeah, and oh, for the first time, we see Harry return to the Dursleys. Like That's the last right. line of the book is like Uncle Vernon was waiting for him, you know, That's and like right. Harry, you know, trudged off like sadly yeah um and so it really does feel so regressive like harry's Mm -hmm. world is freaking upside down (laughs) like it is unrecognizable from what it was the last time he was in this position coming off of the train um and so to have him return to the dursleys feels like no 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 like we we didn't we move past this like aren't we now bigger and plugged in and ready and uh, like equipped to actually deal with this but 
no, because all these things we've been talking about, like the societal structures, right? Like the, the median narrative, um, adults having their own uh, aims and selfish needs that come in the way of like the truth right. are all coming down on poor Harry. Yeah. And then we waited three years for the next book. Oh my God. And then it is really true. Harry's frustration at the beginning of Order of the Phoenix. I think we all so palpable. To oh my God. Yeah. So much. Because <laughs> so much. Because we're like, what the hell is going on? And he's like, what the hell is going on? I know. And, and we did to to you know, kind of recap the fandom experience yeah. briefly. We knew the title of the fifth book pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was immediately when The Goblet of Fire came out, but it was not too late thereafter. Yeah, I can't remember the timeline, but I trust you. Uh, well, thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> and there was like endless speculation as to what that actually right. means. Oh, no, actually, it's, it's mentioned at the end of Goblet of Fire, like the word order of the phoenix. That's right. Yes, yes, because they talk about they talk about assembling the order. Yes, right. Like pull the, yeah, the the order. I think you're right. I'll find the actual quote. Yes, ebooks. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, they bring the word order into it. One other thing that I just wanted to bring up while you're looking, yes, is uh, we haven't really talked about the character, quote unquote, of Mad Eye Moody. Um, That's true. Who is such an interesting thing because he's like a really good teacher. Or yeah. he's a very good teacher. He's, he's, he's an effective teacher. He's an effective teacher. <laughs> he maybe makes some questionable choices. But um, it's just, I know that this has often been talked about in fandom and just on the internet generally, that like the second best Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher they ever had was like this crazy Death Eater in disguise. Yeah. But like Barty Crouch Jr. did a pretty good job teaching these kids how to defend themselves against dark magic. He did. And he was like, he was having himself a grand old time. Yeah. His entire like possession or, yeah. or I guess transfigure like polyjuiced right, situation. Right. Um, like I, I reread the scene where he, uh, where Harry goes to see him privately and there's like the yeah. scopes and stuff everywhere. Yeah. Um, and just this idea that like there is good and bad. Mm-hmm. You can know that some Sometimes you don't other times, but like every person is fundamentally good or bad and they may not appear that way to you. Uh, unfortunately, like that's reductive and, and, and sad, you know, but yeah. also it's something that Harry ends up bearing in mind. And maybe ultimately the books are trying to teach us that that's not true with like Snape and Dumbledore, both having grace out, you know, being right. in, the, in the gray in the middle, right. um, whatever. But Mad-Eye Moody is such a like example of a paranoid adult that has lived through war, yeah. even when he is being, you know, uh, when he's actually Barty. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me, like, how much and, you know, if I ever meet J.K. Rowling, maybe I'll ask her this, but how much of what she was writing of Mad-Eye, how much did she actually keep in mind that it was Barty Crouch, right. like, the whole time? Because when we see Mad-Eye later in the series, he's very similar to yeah. how he is in this book. So I guess Barty was doing a good impression. I think he did a damn good impression. Yeah. Uh, he had a career in espionage or on something. stage yeah on yeah. the stage if, if, if you know the whole death eater thing didn't work out well, well constant vigilance is one of the phrases that i repeat most often from any work of literature yes um, so <laughs> i i loved seeing that come about uh in this book absolutely absolutely yeah no i love mad eye i think he's a he's a great character but it is it is an interesting point that you bring up that he's so paranoid and he's put up all these safeguards to protect himself and yet this still happens and he spends you know nine months trapped in his own box with someone pretending to be him 
It's um, not exactly the teaching assignment he signed up for, I don't think. Nope, but I don't yeah, think so. You know, RIP Ramus Lupin as a teacher. Oh, you were so good. We he didn't was deserve so you. So good. We we knew you so briefly. <laughs> also, this is where the uh, I should have said this first, but this is where the quote unquote like Marauders era fanfics come from. Oh, okay. So that's like Ramus, Sirius, yes. uh, you know, James, Wormtail, right. okay, Peter, and right. Lily, and Snape right. sometimes. Yeah. Um, but this is where, again, we waited three years in between Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix. So right. a lot of the fanfic kind of exploration mm-hmm. uh, happened in that era too. Oh, I love um, that. And was like thinking about what their time at Hogwarts was like. My mm-hmm. first uh, pairing was Remus and Sirius. Just so much oh, chemistry there, so especially good. in the fifth book that we so we kind of like regressed as a fandom once the fifth book came out. Like this is super right. dark and we're really sad. So let's just write an yeah. AU where they're all happy yeah. or talk about the Marauders era. So Absolutely. anyway, that's like an existing thing in fandom. I, well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I love that. Give me the Marauders era movie, you cowards. Yeah, seriously. I'm I'm sorry. Like, well, I have mixed feelings about the Fantastic Beasts movies. Yeah, as a whole, um, uh, you know. Frankly, I feel better knowing that Luna gets to hang out with Newt, right? As her like right? grandfather-in-law. I really hope that that is somehow like hinted at somehow in these movies. Yeah, like that will make it all worth it <laughs> if it just ends with most of it. With, definitely, with, yeah. <laughs> with, uh, a little little baby Scamander and Luna Lovegood. Mm-hmm. That is adorable. But I would so rather see like a Marauders era. Like you could so unpack that and, and I mean, that yeah, could be a like, whole TV show. I know. I know think uh, think deeply about bullying. Like yeah. James Potter was a bully. Yeah. You know, no two ways about it. So mm-hmm. like let's dive into that. Let's realize why people yeah. hurt each other. Like that mm-hmm. there's there's such, I think, room for a play, a movie, a series, you know, Absolutely. a web comic, like whatever it might be. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and that's one of the things, you know, and I mean, this is getting forward into more the fifth and sixth books, but really dealing with bullying and dealing and also dealing with the the fact that your parents are, you know, going along with the fact of like seeing cracks in the facade as part of growing up in in seeing that in your parents or your or in adults like we see with Dumbledore a little bit in yeah. in this book when Harry learns that like his dad was kind of an asshole and or was a bully and then also coming to terms with the fact that he then turned a corner you know right. like that people can grow yeah it's really it's it's really more more complex than i gave it credit for probably <laughs> while reading it at the time yeah but it i think she does a really good job really good job of that and and you start start getting the seeds of that in in this book particularly yeah i would say and I know we've gotten so excited by the themes, the, the you know, use of this book and its structure as sort of the turning point of the whole series, like yeah. the middle of seven books. This mm-hmm. is it. Um, there are also just so many delightful details. Like this book yes. is so cinematic to me. Yes. Uh, before, and perhaps I think the movie order was signed at the time this book was being written. I don't know what the timeline exactly is. Looking I, back, I, I sort of make that assumption. I um, think that, so the book came out in 2000. I think that Maybe that's the too early. first the first movie came out 2001 i think it came oh, out oh okay yeah i think i believe so and that makes sense because i had yeah. a I had a hermione doll growing up uh uh-huh. when i was old enough to have dolls yes. or young enough to have dolls yes. still um but in any case i remember reading it and being like oh this is very cinematic like i think it makes yeah. sense that there's movies coming oh yeah absolutely um, but there's so many details that are that are lovely and like the scenes really stick out to me i loved mm-hmm. the dragons i love the you know exploration of the yeah. lake there's yeah. so many creatures that get involved mm-hmm. in ways again that foreshadow the war 
or um, even like the prefix baths are just so like marvelous in Who my brain. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want a prefix bath? I know. Yeah. And uh, and again, these details that pop up in, in fanfic where mm-hmm. they're just anything that is a, a foothold that you can put that detail into your own work right. that expands like the map or colors in the map of Hogwarts yeah. um, is so great. And we get more magic in this book. We get more ways that people can relate to each other. You know, we get like the layer of kind of romance added mm-hmm. to uh, how people can relate to each other, which had previously been just like as a child or as a pupil or as a friend. Um, so it just like, it, I see this as really like the world blooming. Absolutely. Um, and it's for that reason, one of the ones that I like rereading the most. Me too. Like I said, I really like this book and I know that not everybody does and that's totally fine but I find it fun and I find it exciting how much the world expands yeah and just really kind of like blows up in this one I also you know Winston calls this the sports movie of <laughs> of of the books because it is you know kind of it's it, really more of a heist it is I think it is which you don't you don't necessarily realize it's it's a heist masked as a sports movie Yes. And, uh, and Maybe Order of the Phoenix is more heisty, given that there's a literal heist. But yeah. I, I, I get the references. But this, I don't know. I feel like this book demands like a specific reading. Like it's yeah. there's so much there that uh, it, it kind of calls you to make comparisons. Yeah. Um, and while that can be like a way, obviously, to criticize a book or to, to talk about what could be better, um, I think that like one of the things I hope of my own works is that people talk about them and think about them and want to go back because there's, you know, more that they can get out of it. Right. And uh, to me, that's, you know, that's a successful uh, piece. And I think that Goblet of Fire definitely checks that box for me. I agree. I agree 100 percent. My last my last little wine thing. So what I've been doing with all the other books, because the trio grows up and changes so much in they each do. book, I've been trying to give a different grape to each of them that I feel like embodies their personality oh in HarryPotterGrapes.com. Yes. Get it. Oh my God. I'm buying the domain right now. <laughs> Listen, that's how you get rich. That's how you yeah. do whatever it is that you want to do for the rest of your life. It's very true. <laughs> um, so in this one, since we're sort of talking about since I've been talking about Australia, I think that some some Australian wines can be applied to to these to these three. And I feel I feel bad because I always give Ron like the forgotten one, like the one that you don't think about so much, but like is in, integral to like the blending of the wine or something. Um, but for this one, I'm going to give him Cabernet Sauvignon because well for a couple reasons so cab obviously from california is like that's the quintessential grape of california in australia they make a ton of cab as well but it's it's less like iconic than the shiraz right and and so but it's still like really like solid really good wine i've had some some of my favorite caps from australia nice and i feel like you know, we haven't talked about it that much, but I feel like Ron continues to really come into his own in this book. And like you said, this is the first time that he and Harry, like, have a fight. Yeah. And while he's not necessarily in the right, like, he's he's standing up for himself and he's standing up for what he thinks is true and ultimately comes around and is just a solid, solid dude. I love that. Yeah. Also, fun fact about Australian cab... If you're ever blind tasting and you want to really imp- – or if you're ever tasting and want to really impress somebody and you get a note of eucalyptus, Ooh. that is an indicator of Australian 
Cabernet. That's awesome. There you go. The first time I smelled eucalyptus trees when I when uh-huh. I was first in California, I cried because it was just oh like such a beautiful, it's, unexpected smell. I love I love eucalyptus and and it's not something that you think would like smell good or taste good in a red wine, but it it really does. It it adds like a kind of it's like, like toffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It adds like a sort of sweet herbal component to it, and it's really cool. That's I, awesome. I like it. Yeah, and I I think that that's a great uh, that's a great parallel for Ron. We get so much of every other Weasley in this book. I know. <laughs> maybe maybe not as much Bill, but like yeah. Charlie is there. The twins are doing their thing. Yep. Ginny's around, and Harry has feelings. Um, yep. and yep. like even Percy has a lot of conflict. That's so true. Ron, yeah. you know, is is like we kind of see him in in the context of needing to like stand up for himself. Absolutely, like, like you said. Um, and I think that he is making a lot of uh, realizations, and mm-hmm. like we all do as adolescents right like trying different things on and trying on how this behavior would be or how this perspective would be and then ultimately you know to his credit like coming around and being um big enough and mature enough to say like hey i I was i was bad and yeah be friends again absolutely then for hermione so i already gave her riesling in a different book i think in the first book because Riesling, most people think of it, when they hear Riesling, they think it's sweet. Mm-hmm. But a lot of Riesling is really dry. And even if it is sweet, it's usually got like really, really high acidity. And so it kind of cuts that sweetness. Nice. I paired that with Hermione because, you know, you expect her to be something and then she becomes something else. And yeah. also she's, speaking of like high acidity, she's she's so sharp. She's like... <laughs> In that trio of two doofuses. Yes. She is the 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 note that makes the rest of them good. Absolutely. Um, but since I already gave her Riesling and another one, another another grape that you find a lot in Australia is Semillon. And Semillon is kind of like Sauvignon Blanc. It's most prevalent in Bordeaux. Um, so speaking of Bordeaux again, yeah. again, Hermione plays a big role in tying different, bringing different people together in this book. You know, yeah. she she is not quite as biased against the other people as uh or like you know the Durmstrangs and the Bobatons as well maybe she is a little biased against the Bobatons <laughs> she doesn't like she doesn't like Fleur so Semillon is one of my favorite like kind of weird grapes and it's usually blended with Sauvignon Blanc but it's like so it's like a little bit more full-bodied than Sauvignon Blanc but like still really nice and dry and this is just a little a little sidebar and plug but one of my favorite people in the wine industry is a master som. His name is Richard Betts. He's delightful. And he and his wife or partner, girlfriend, I'm not sure exactly what their relationship to each other is, but her name is Carla and they make wine down in Australia together. And they actually make a, uh, (laughs) they make a wine called Nichon, which speaking of French, apparently Nichon means like tits in in French. It's like slang for for, like boobs. And <laughs> so I just appreciate like that they just like release this wine and they're like, here's this really, you know, fancy and it's delicious and it's mostly Semillon and I think it has a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc in it. So it's a white wine. But I just appreciate that they're like, that's their little tongue in cheek, like clever thing. And I feel like that's something Hermione would do. That's she, awesome. She'd be super clever about something. Also, boobs feature heavily in the ball. It is uh, true. In Goblet of Fire. It is true. This is the first Harry Potter book with boobs. It's true. It's really the sign that we're all growing up you heard it yeah. here first yeah yep, absolutely and then last but not least i do think that shiraz or syrah is a good grape for harry in this book especially australian shiraz it's 
often like very heavy handed and like things are intense for Harry in this book. Like, yeah, the stakes are really high. He could die at any moment. And he was just like thrust into this thing that he didn't ask to be a part of. And I feel like everything is just kind of weighing on him really heavily in this book. But I think he handles it really, you know, as well as you can for a 14-year-old. I know. He asks like, for help. He, he, he studies. For help. He writes his essays. It's what a true. good boy. It's true. This is really where he, like, figures out how to be a person and to be able to ask for help and, and grow up a little bit. And so I think he, he becomes kind of like Joe Nash's Shiraz. I like that. With a little bit more finesse. Very much. Yeah. <laughs> well, Amanda, thank you so much. If Do you have any other thoughts or last last thoughts? No. I mean, I think we covered it. I, I forgot how much I loved the World Cup um, yeah. intro. And oh, I remember, so too, uh, reading that on my way home from the bookstore for the at uh-huh. the midnight premiere. Yep. And then I shut the book right as the dark mark appeared yep. over the or at the end of the chapter, whatever it was. Yeah. And I was just like... Oh man, things are popping off things and like are going crazy. Goblet of Fire is the is the book where everything uh pops off and yeah. it's just I don't know. It's it's lovely. Thank you for having me on to talk about oh it. Oh my god, thank you so much um, for being here. I'll talk about Harry Potter anytime, all right? the time. Right? Me too. Listeners, you can also go back and listen to our Garth Nix episode, which you absolutely should. Um, But just in case somebody hasn't listened to that one, Amanda, is there anything you would like to plug? Yeah. So I run Multitude, which is a podcast collective and consultancy. We make shows that are much like pairing, enthusiastic, Mm -hmm. but still critical about Mm -hmm. stuff that we Mm -hmm. love. Um, And we help other people to make podcasts and to find audiences. So if you are a creator, a podcaster, we have a bunch of free resources for you. And if you just like listening to good podcasts, podcasts hopefully multitude falls under that banner you can just plug multitude into your podcast player i may be biased but i think there's some of the best podcasts out there oh thanks we try oh, really hard and we have course. new shows coming out oh this my God, year so we have events going on oh my so gosh it's a it's also popping off for multitude this is kind it's, of our goblet of fire this year. is your goblet of fire year i think so however we hopefully fewer dragons yeah hopefully fewer dragons no death no death maybe some mermaids gold i mean sphinxes yeah probably yeah probably mazes not uh, opposed. And many hopefully many goblets not of fire but of <laughs> wine yes. will be consumed i love that so uh join us please we're at multitude.productions that's where you can find our tour information our shows and new show announcements oh my god and our newsletter so awesome. Yes, whenever I have a question, I always go to multitude.productions first. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here, Amanda, and for letting me luxuriate in in this uh, most comfortable recording environment. You know, before we stand up, I will take a picture that you can share with your oh, audience. Great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, you're very welcome anytime. And uh, I'll be listening to the next episode. Yay. Cheers. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Julia Schifini. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com or on any social media platform. 
Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.